Welcome to America's Heroes Group podcast with information and resources that's disseminated intentionally to empower our military population with host Vietnam veteran Cliff Kelly, co-host Iraq veteran Colonel Dr. Damon Arnold, and co-host Army National Guard veteran Sean Claiborne. And now, America's Heroes Group podcast. Back to America's Heroes Group with our roundtable partner, Mental Health Matters, Nami Contra Costa. May is Mental Health Awareness and Military Caregiver Month. Our host is Cliff Kelly. I'm Sean Claiborne, the co-host. Our executive producer is Glenda Smith, and our digital media producer is Ivan Ortega of Scouts Honor Productions. So we have our partner on the line. That is Gigi Crowder. She's the executive director of Nami Contra Costa in California. Nami is the National Alliance on Mental Illness an advocacy group founded by family members who, with, of people with mental illness. And we're going to talk about the reducing the mental stigma by learning signs and symptoms, the stigma of mental illness. So, G.J., are you there with us? Yes, thanks for having me. I appreciate you coming on the show. No problem. I enjoy it each month. So tell us about that, that stigma. How do we reduce the stigma of mental illness, and what are the signs and symptoms that we need to talk about? Well, we know nationwide one in five Americans suffer from an episode of mental distress, but we're not talking about it because of the stigma associated with it. Uh, a lot of people don't know and don't recognize mental illness as a medical condition. It's actually more common than cancer, diabetes, or even heart disease. So we reduce the stigma when we have more individuals talking about it, when we recognize that the disorders are the number one reason for hospital admissions nationwide. So obviously really? there's more, yeah, number one reason, even if it's not because the person is going to psych emergency services, often when individuals go in with, an, with a, another ailment in their body, um, a very astute physician can uh, relate that to having the understanding that perhaps that person is living with a mental health challenge and the other symptom that they're presenting is secondary to the mental health challenge. Wow, that's amazing. I did not know that. The thing of it is, though, too, because you can relate mental illness to a lot of things um, in the world. I always say working with the homeless, particularly as, as, a, as a veterans organization, we work with the homeless and we deal with things for, for homeless events and advocacy groups and things like that. We oftentimes don't talk about mental illness as being an issue with homelessness, being linked to homelessness, no. even uh, even with the idea <laughs> people think, oh, this person's lazy, don't want to work, or they're, you know, they, or they use the term shell-shocked, or, they got, or they, we just throw around PTSD. PTSD now seems like it's being stigmatized to the point of, you know, to where people, you know, use that as almost like a slur. Like we used to say retarded was, was okay to say, now we say retarded is something bad. PTSD is almost becoming like that kind of, having that kind of stigma. Yeah, only because I think in some cases people don't understand the definition of post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's been in some ways overused and in some ways underused. If you do not have the definition for it, you can easily stigmatize it based on any negative behavior. But we know that um, it's a very real diagnosis that people who have experienced trauma in their life often will have some opportunity to protect themselves through not, um, if they don't get the care that they need, uh, they can protect themselves mentally by reliving the trauma 
And we just have to have the conversations that we need to have around what is and what isn't a mental illness and uh, dispelling myths and stereotypes and really seeing it as a medical condition because it's a chemical imbalance. And so you can have both internal and external stigma. So a person could feel like they don't want to talk about it because of their trying to talk about it and people not understanding it and, and then instead using the C word and looking more at their behaviors versus it being a medical condition. And then, of course, what we suffer from most in society is external stigma, the misunderstanding of mental illness and having people, you know, and I, I will attribute a lot of that to the media that will often, um, you know, trivialize the illness and portray people in their worst light when they're living with a mental illness. So what is the definition of trauma specifically? So how do we, when we say, because people use that word all the time, and they'll use it jokingly, people use it, you see it in sitcoms, you see it on social media, um, they'll use it as almost like an excuse sometimes, but they don't really mean that they have trauma. What does the word trauma actually mean? Well, trauma is any experience that a person has um, gone through that has caused them to have pain associated with it or a negative feeling. So a traumatic experience for some for one person might be different. Divorce could be traumatic for some people. A loss can be, you know, a death could be really traumatic for some people. But any any experience that a, a person has had that caused a negative impact and shifts them from a place of well-being. Mm-hmm. And so it's, 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 it's often defined in children when we start talking about um, negative childhood experiences. So uh, individuals that may have had to go through um, foster care because their biological family members weren't there to parent them are often exposed to a lot of trauma through that experience. And is the is emotional trauma and ex- the experience of trauma this, uh, very similar to, do we physiologically react the same way as we get as we, as we get physical trauma, like somebody hitting us or maybe we're in a, in a, a, a car accident or something like that? That's a perfect example because yes, the brain is a, the brain is a you know a body part, and so the emotional impact of sometimes even seeing certain things can be triggering or traumatizing, and so each person has their own coping skills, and some people have more opportunity based on how they experience things to to let it not impact how they move on after the experience and others get stuck in it. I mean, I personally don't watch, don't watch the morning news because I often will see things that trigger me and it will bring up a previous trauma, something that I've experienced in my life that was painful for me, so I avoid it hmm. now, again. Is- but we have to know how to protect ourselves. But I wonder sometimes in people that cause we, cause we are we're starting to talk about in the professional world, we start talking about, uh, mm-hmm. Trauma drifting into the word trauma being used, PTSD even being used in uh, violent communities where uh, children is particularly are exposed to a lot of violence. Um, however, they're hesitant to use the word, um, you know, traumatic or use the word trauma. And they may not even be equipped to even be able to, to really rationalize or figure out what is going on in their mind. But you see kids that are acting out. You see children that are exposed to violence. And you see that it seems like the violence is almost multiplying. Although we, our studies show have to you know I mean, mention this. I'll be that would be not a good idea not to mention it. But uh, studies show that violent crime is supposedly going down. However, it's, it seems like it's more prevalent on a, if you live in those environments. Where again, it might be going down in some areas, and it, 
and others of people are seeing more of it or we're normalizing it mm-hmm. because of the area, as you said, that a person lives in. What we do know is that the outcomes of people having exposure to trauma have increased. And so our suicide rates, for instance, have increased. Um, there was a study that was done for young children who live in neighborhoods where there's a lot of violence, and they equated it to being um, more damaging than the individuals who watched the twin towers come down. Come down. That those kids had a prolonged response that was negative and had negative outcomes versus people who saw that um, horrible experience uh, of 9-11, but then it didn't continually happen. It was that one-time experience. Um, it was processed. It was horrible. But individuals who live in environments where they're kind of normalized to the violence actually have a response that's more lifelong to that level of violence, even when they're removed from the situation. Wow. Like there's, I, we did a, 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 took a group of kids from the inner city part of Oakland out into the wilderness to just kind of have some camping. And some of them could not be at ease because it was too quiet for them. They were used to the, the hustle and bustle and the noise and the violence and the gunshots and the sirens at home. And it was unsettling for them to be there waiting for the shooter drop that probably wasn't going to because of where we were at. But we had to we had to really do some work around making them feel comfortable. And what most would have seen was a serene setting. Wow. And I've heard that before where people say they, they don't get they're not nervous when there's a lot of noise going around. So when they, when they hear kids playing or people laughing and breaking bottles, you know, everything's OK. But as soon as it gets quiet, they're waiting for that storm to come. Exactly. And our body has a, you know, a flight or flight. So we we have conditioned ourselves to respond to danger. And that's the thing, like I said, is to me, is it's, it's, it's fascinating that we report in the news, report all the time that, you know, violent crimes is going down. We can go to another, you know, there's a lot of people that talk about why that's, the reporting is going down. But however, in our hospitals and in our treatment, we're seeing an increase in people that are suffering from, you know, different types of of trauma or PTSD or acting in violent ways or suffering from different types of psychological breakdowns. Um, people, you know, I mean, violent shootings are, 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 are coming up. Mass shootings are, are, are seems to be getting worse. So the thing is that, that, that I want to understand that are we doing a good enough job of, of, uh, and of talking about this? And then also how do we recognize when somebody's getting close to the edge? I mean, some of the common symptoms that, post-traumatic stress disorder when someone's having a difficult time, whether it's been a military vet or just someone based on the environment that they grew up in, is that, you know, they'll be easily startled or frightened by things, possibly irritable, angry. Uh, Sometimes um, with children, you see a lot of feelings of guilt and shame, sleep problems, feelings of being tense. So we have to and, of course, destructive behavior, as, you, as, as you've spoken to earlier with children acting out. Uh, with adults, you see excessive drinking, sometimes drug abuse. And then it can go as far as seeing or hearing, hearing things that aren't there. So we know that if we talk about these symptoms and we're having other people who can help us identify them, then we can tell people to seek the care they need to address them. What we don't do enough is encourage people who are having any of those symptoms, whether it be symptoms of PTSD or symptoms of depression or uh, 
bipolar or schizophrenia if we often don't support the individuals to seek the supports, the medical supports that they need. So say a, say a parent's listening right now and they have a child who they see, see acting out and maybe they don't understand why. Maybe they don't. Maybe they, maybe the parent is part of the problem or, or maybe the environment's the problem. Maybe it's a combination of things or maybe the parent is just doing their best and they're not part of the problem, but they see these signs and symptoms. What is the first step? How do they address it to the child and how do they get help? I think I think we have to uh, use language based on the knowledge of our how our children will respond. So sometimes we'll ask one yes or no question, but sometimes you have to dig a little deeper than the yes or no. And you have to have specific questions. How was school today? Can you share with me this or that? And then you have to draw them into a place of feeling comfortable with talking about their feelings because most of us were yes or no to our parents. So it's up to the parent and those who are, you know, responsible for the kid to dig a little bit deeper and ask questions that require more than a yes or no. I think that's about really, their feeling. Yeah, I think that's, really kind of day they have. that's a really good point. Because yeah. I remember a story, a personal story. A friend of mine uh, went to his uh, girlfriend's house and they had, she had a child there. And uh, the mom thinks the child is perfect. Everything's going fine. But the child does have, has act, had some behavior issues in school. So when you ask the child, was everything okay at school? They say, yeah, everything was fine. Everything was good. And they say, okay. But then when they ask, well, what happened at school today? And then you start 15 minutes later asking more questions. The child said something about the kids laughing at him and how that made him feel, you know, or thinking he was stupid or he was ugly or something like that. And then, but that wouldn't have come out if the boyfriend hadn't actually asked those questions just because he was just curious. That's all it really was. It wasn't like, that was all it really was. But the mom had been living with it for the forever and never, had never even known that was even happening. And I guess that's it. We just have to be more curious. We have to pay attention more. Because we are seeing signs, even with decreased violence overall, what goes on in our household. We have to be more conscientious of that. And I'm living in a county in California where, you know, pretty much once a week I'm hearing of a young person who ended their own life. So obvious things are not okay. Mm. And mostly the parents will say, I didn't see it coming. Mm. And then when you kind of go back and look at the family. I'm not saying they weren't great parents. They were great parents, but they were not noticing things that perhaps they should have about shifts in behavior for their children. Mm-hmm. Things like, you know, more social withdrawal and being disconnected and not caring, get their homework in. Just any change in behaviors, we should really kind of pay attention to that, especially since we've all experienced COVID. Mm-hmm. It's really important for us to be more intentional about conversations we have with young people. Hmm. Another thing I noticed as well, and this is a big topic right now because there's a lot of talk about with the LGBTQ community, that mm-hmm. there is that young kids in particular um, and, their, and parents' rights to uh, make decisions on their, on their child's um, uh, transformations, if they want to go change gender or do gender reassignment, things like mm-hmm. that. Is there a, what's the trauma? What, what types of conversations are you hearing in that kind of in that realm? You know, so are, are, and, and this is like this is what's confusing confusing I think to the mainstream to mainstream population. We don't have kids mm-hmm. with LGBTQ or don't know that they do, and then they they're concerned they're concerned about what level of care do we provide, what level of care do we not provide, and how do we even understand whether or not this is a real medical issue or not a real medical issue, and then what is a child going through if they're are they experiencing trauma or is it not trauma? 
Well, I mean, basically, there has not been an acceptance of kids, a kid dealing with questioning their sexual preferences. If they don't have a safe place, they're likely going to feel more depressed anyhow. And so um, we work with organizations at NAMI, like the Rainbow Center, because we know the horrific statistics. Anytime you have statistics that say that uh, there's been an increase in suicide, 27% for the general population, you can almost double that for LGBTQ youth. And wow. so, and then when they're transgender, it's even higher. And then when they're transgender of color, primarily African-American, then it's even higher because wow. of the lack of understanding around um, sexual identity issues. Uh, we haven't talked about it, although there's been a lot of progress over the last 10, 15 years. It's not talked about enough, and the resources are not readily available to young people. So that struggle that they go through when they start questioning and don't feel acceptance, but don't feel like they, they're in a place where they can get a safe uh, response to their questioning, it's pretty detrimental. I think that's one of the key things is that we're teams to be, we seem to be pointing fingers and not really discussing, really trying to dig into the truth of the of the situation altogether the, of, the, of the controversy. It becomes controversial, but nobody wants to really get down to the real answers. Everybody has their own um, conclusion as to what is right and what is wrong, but we don't. But no one's really trying to get into the facts of of what actually is happening, particularly when you're talking about in the mind of a child. Exactly, and so. Even as the the children are the experts of themselves, to be honest with you. So the only one you're going to figure it out is to develop the relationship for them to feel safe enough to talk with you about whatever it is they're going through. So what are some of the um, success stories? How do, how do when people start talking about things? What is what are the ways to get them from uh, from trauma being something that that hurts them or, or or affects their lives in a negative way to where they can either live get to the point where they can start living again or being more have more thriving happiness in her life? I mean, well, of course, because uh, mental illness or depression versus being depressed, so there is a difference. When a person lives with depression, there are psychiatric medications that they can take to help them feel better. So being able to point people in the right direction, for some, they just need therapy and someone to talk to and tools that they can use to feel better, and some do need psychiatric medication. And so Having opportunities for individuals to manage their symptoms in any way they need to is really important. And uh, they have to feel safe enough to do so. And we have found because of COVID, because many more people are talking about how they're feeling, whether they're um, more anxious and living with anxiety disorders or whether they're, you know, truly depressed, which, you know, we now know that that's been normalized because when you're telling a whole country they must shelter in place. Many of us suffer some level of depression because we're people who are connected to purpose. And when you can't fulfill your purpose because you're not able to go outside, you're going to start getting, you know, the blues. So Mm -hmm. I think that what what we've realized is that we needed to have more discussions, and those are starting to happen. And there's starting to be people who are now seeking out support. And so we noticed where there's that opportunity in schools for kids to talk about it, the suicide rates are lower. Where there's that work environment, where uh, employees can have mental wellness days when they're, you know, needing to take off, then there's an increase in productivity and uh, there's more uh, 
that the, the work environment is more pleasant to be in when people are more free to talk about how they're feeling. So we've kind of came up with a campaign about building mental health friendly community so that we can create a safe place and we can reduce the stigma and we can educate individuals. I've always been curious is, is has is, a, is mental illness and trauma of this of this type is it more common in the United States? How do we fare against other nations? Yeah, the United States actually around the I guess there's situational things that can happen and then it's it's it, it, um you know a, a health disorder. But it does you're you are impacted by the environment, like there's triggers and there are studies that show when individuals come here from another country, they're more likely to live with depression than anywhere else. Wow. So there's something to be said about how we embrace individuals from other countries, but there's also something to be said about the treatment that other countries have that we don't have. Hmm. So is, is it? Or do you see have any data that shows that mental illness or, or, or issues around mental illness or the repercussions of mental illness, people acting out, creating, um, exhibiting violence, things like that, is it lower in other nations versus the United States? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, There's really? some, I mean, even a response, like in the United King- Kingdom, they don't have law enforcement respond to um, mental people having mental health emergencies because they see it as a medical condition. And, you know, in this country, we're working on it with Assembly Bill 988 in California and then 988 in general across the nation. But right now we have given the job of uh, responding to a medical condition to law enforcement. Mm, that's true. And because it, it seems like in our culture, in, in American culture, I always say that when I talk to people from other countries, people ask me all the time, like, why do these things, why do I hear about, you know, uh, you know, like Columbine and all these different, you know, horror stories where a child grabs a weapon and starts shooting people or people committing suicide and even people that are, are famous committing suicide. You know, Robin Williams, for example, committed suicide. I mean, think one of the all-time classic uh, um, heroes of comedians that you can think of commit suicide at, a, at an older age, not even at a younger mm-hmm. age. You know, so, I mean, so when you think about it, when you hear all these stories, and I always say, well, you know, America, we're kind of a violent culture. Like, that's kind of like what's different, seems to be different about us and our response to everything when something goes wrong is to hit it or to punish it or to beat it. <laughs> I mean, we never, you know, that's basically, that's our number, that's our first, it seems like that's our first response to everything that we do. Yeah, I mean, we, we as America, have a lot of work to do. And and then there's some dialogue around moral injury, and uh, I know this. Uh, your work is around supporting um, veterans, and so we also have to look at how we support individuals who are in place to protect our country. So the moral injury um, conversation is also very important because we understand a lot of individuals have that as part of their um, distress. And that can also uh, respond into suicides. Uh, I mean, we're seeing that in 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 that um, when uh, when there's some distress around a behavior or, or something that conflicts with a spiritual, well-grounded belief system. Hmm. So, what's what's the next step for for this country? How do we get better, and how do we get on top of this uh, this issue? I was in a, a privileged position in California to respond to President Biden at his last State of the Union. He talked about his uh, plans around mental health, 
And if he gets the funding that he's requested, I think we'll be uh, in the right direction. Start having more open dialogue about it. I know most uh, states now, there's funding in place that was never there before. It was never a part of the national agenda to even talk about how do we better respond and support people living with mental illness. So COVID has kind of opened that door. In California, we're looking at approaches around how we address the needs of those who are unsheltered and living on the streets who live with mental illness and who may be self-medicating. There's always a conversation about whether the person has a substance abuse problem, and that's where they're you know, uh, having a difficult time or whether they had an untreated mental illness and then they self-medicated, and that's what led to them becoming unsheltered. Wow. So are you hopeful for what's been done so far? Oh, yeah. I I, I, I know what's happening in the county and the state that I'm in. Um, we're we're co-sponsors to uh, Assembly Bill 988 because we knew the family that kind of led that effort. So I'm, I'm thinking that... Uh, we're well on our way, and we're also using lived experience. We're using people who are not just psychiatrists or social workers. We're using people who've been there before, and sometimes they're the best person to talk to another person who's having a difficult time, especially when they come out on the other side themselves toward recovery. Gigi Crowder, I appreciate your time and also the things you've done for the, for people that are suffering from mental illness and bringing this to our attention and also bringing the discussion forward so that we can create solutions and also get on top of this thing. Appreciate your time. Thank you. This is Sean Claiborne from America's Heroes Group. This show is dedicated to the, to the mothers of service men, uh, men and women for Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. You deserve it. Thank you for serving our country and doing all the great things you've done. America's Heroes Group. See you next week. Thank you for listening to America's Heroes Group Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And for more details, visit americashg.org.